This episode is brought to you by The Hartford, a leading provider of employee benefits and income protection products that is dedicated to standing behind U.S. workers to help them pursue their goals and get through tough times. For more information about The Hartford, visit thehartford.com slash employee benefits. We've also got a link in our show notes. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. In our previous episode, we met Britt. This is Britt, yeah. If you didn't listen to our last episode and meet Britt, you should. This is the second episode in a series about childhood trauma, and you should definitely go in order, so that one is episode number 85. But no matter what you remember about number 85, we're going to do a little quick refresher. Britt had some intense stuff happen to her during childhood. Her parents divorced when she was young. Her mother died when Britt was eight. When Britt's dad remarried, the blended family situation involved conflict. Those fights often involved yelling. Britt got a tape recorder and started to document some arguments, which helped her feel more safe. But she says she much more often felt isolated, anxious, and stressed. We also learned from Dr. Brian Lynch, who's a pediatrician who works at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, that an overabundance of stress becomes toxic. This toxic stress can alter your physiology, brain development, and gene expression. It means that what happens in childhood can affect your health later in life. It can actually change your brain and change your biological systems. Researchers and clinicians like Dr. Lynch measure the bad, harmful stuff from your childhood with a tool called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. ACEs calculates the trauma that can produce toxic stress and gives you a score from 0 to 10. Most people in the U.S. have at least one ACE. Britt got a 7. ACEs scores are linked to emotional, behavioral, and physical health risks in adulthood. So Brit's score of 7 means that as an adult, she's statistically more at risk for a whole huge range of bad health stuff. Things like being a smoker, engaging in risky sexual behavior, or intravenous drug use. Also depression, suicidality, and anxiety, cancer, diabetes, COPD, it goes on. But Brit is not a statistic. Brit is a person. So the question is, with her adverse childhood experiences, how the heck is Brit doing now? Well, she's 32 now. And she's only 32 now. She's hopefully got a lot of adulthood ahead of her, and she has some adulthood behind her, too. And her adulthood has included some of the things that her ACEs score says she's at risk for. The most immediate thing that I think has carried over from my childhood into my 20s is, sadly, anxiety. Um, can't get rid of that. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows, but I've, I've been diagnosed with three different types of anxiety. Um, panic disorder, generalized anxiety, and social anxiety. And I used to have a really hard time with uh, socializing, and it's gotten a lot easier over the years. Um, but anxiety is at the forefront. I've carried that with me. As far as behaviors, Britt says she's repeated some of the relationship models she saw as a kid. So I immediately uh, got into an unhealthy relationship right out of high school uh, and then quickly dated someone that was 10 years older than me. And and I look back at that relationship where I was belittled, um, just not cared for, and I didn't remove myself from it. And one of the kind of insightful, weird things that that ex um, gave to me when we parted was this comment where he said, Britt, one of the reasons why I got away with so much is because you didn't ever give me any consequences. You let me get away with everything. Just to clarify, anyone who ever tells you that is misdirected in their ways of thinking, and it is not your fault that they treated you badly. But all in all, Brit's adulthood has also turned out pretty well. She has built up a community around her with strong friendships. 
She has a career as an artist, which is something that has always been a passion for her. She has her own business. She's pretty okay, actually. I'm pretty good. I'm um, a little sleep-deprived. I'm um, working too much. Uh, same. But it sounds like Britt is feeling the kind of well-adjusted adult stress that most of us experience, not the toxic stress that she was feeling as a kid. Maybe you're thinking, why is that? Why do some people end up pretty okay and other people not? How can we make sure that our crappy childhood experiences don't totally ruin the rest of our lives? Those are great questions. We will get into them after the break. Hi, everyone. I have a podcast suggestion for you. If you like the sound of two women talking, which is my favorite sound. It's called listening to the Forever 35 podcast. Am I still 35? No, but I was when the show started six years ago. There are six years of episodes. Hosts and best friends Kate Spencer and Dory Shafrir talk to listeners about everything. It's a real comfort listen. Find Forever 35 wherever you listen to this podcast. And we're back. Last week, we focused on some of the worst parts of Brit's childhood. But as we say all the time, no one should be reduced to just their sad story. It's nowhere close to a complete picture of a person or of a situation. So let's take another look at Brit's childhood from a different perspective. The ACEs study itself doesn't take into account the good things about a childhood with adverse experiences. And I am not trying to silver line this, okay? I'm not saying, oh my gosh, it's so good these bad things happen to you. Aren't you kind of glad in a way? Like what doesn't kill you? It makes you stronger, right? No, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about things that prevent or lessen the blow of some of these traumas. Researchers and clinicians refer to these good things as protective factors. Protective factors aren't like insulated, hermetically sealed safety bubbles. They don't protect a kid from trauma. They're not an eraser. They don't cancel out anyone's ACEs. Instead, protective factors are tools and skills in place to understand and process trauma. They're like knee pads and wrist guards you put on when you head out to learn how to rollerblade. You know you're going to fall. And when you finally do, you still feel it. But maybe you won't break a bone in half and start bleeding and get an infection and lose a limb. So what exactly is a protective factor? Kind of depends on who you ask. We asked Dr. Brian Lynch, who you might remember from the last episode and also like eight minutes ago. So protective factors, I consider a very broad term. And a big piece of that are factors that help either children or parents improve their resilience. So let's focus on that first. Part of the problem is that we don't have shared language around what those mean. If you Google protective factors and ACEs, you're going to get a lot of different resources that are all going to say things in their own way. We're not talking always the same language. And one of the challenges we currently have right now is there's no agreed upon tool that really lists the quote or unquote right ACEs. That shouldn't stop us from trying to address this this public health threat. So we took a look through a bunch of these resources, and we saw a lot of different protective factors listed, but a lot of sources share some common themes for protective factors. Some protective factors give children a sense of self. Some give children the tools to process trauma through expression or communication. Some give children models for how to behave, and some are just like cozy blankets that make them feel loved. We've chosen to think of two buckets of protective factors to help talk about this. Individual protective factors and relationship-based protective factors. So let's look at Britt's childhood through the lens of her protective factors. What did Britt have going for her as a kid, as an individual and in her relationships? 
And how can we make sure the kids in our lives have what they need to be okay as adults? Our first category is the individual category. Think about this as personal traits and skills, things you need to be able to get through this world. Things like adaptability, temperament, sense of humor. And some of that is innate. It's just a kid's personality. So how would Britt describe herself as a kid? I've been a pretty calm person and observant. And I think that's kind of the the spy in me. I just was really, that gave me a sense of purpose that um, you need to be kind of contained and um, neutral as much as you can and document things. And there was a structure to it and it felt healthy. I would say into my teens and older, I was more of the peacemaker in the family or I would try to. Um, I always like to seek resolution. That's just naturally part of who Brit is. Brit is a calm, observant peacemaker. And not everyone is. And different people will have different strengths based on who they are, but those are some of Brit's strengths. Beyond their personality, there are also core life skills that every kid needs to learn. Not just because they eventually have to know how to butter their own bread, but because they need a sense of who they are and what they're capable of. So when you give kids these skills... Really what you're doing is trying to increase a child's sense of self-worth and their self-confidence. Some of this is going to be like Parenting 101, but think about it. The first thing that gives a child a sense of self-worth is whether they're even worth paying attention to. When they cry, does someone respond? When they look at you, do you make a silly face? This is especially important for young, developing brains. It's called serve and return. If your infant coos at you and smiles at you, you want to respond back. You don't want to be looking at your phone and not responding to those things because those are very important in building resilience and building these skills and confidence. So when you're showing your child attention, you're teaching them confidence. You're teaching them they have worth and they need that confidence because someday they're going to try something and they're going to suck at it. They're going to fail. They're going to fail at walking, tying their shoes, using a fork, or in my kid's case, a spoon. Childhood is a series of failures, and your kid has got to be ready for it. And I think that's sometimes hard to convince parents. Yes, we want to be them to support them when they fail and help them build themselves back up. But for them to have the confidence that they can go through that experience again later and be successful, many times you have to fail first, even as a child. One of Brit's ways to build confidence and competence as a kid was through art. She had a lot of exposure and opportunity to explore and create, and it immediately connected with her. I don't know if it was just a distraction, a form of escapism, but it never felt unhealthy. It felt really kind of powerful and fun, and and I don't know who my audience was. I did that for myself, and I, I didn't really have much of a family audience for that. I think, you know, at that period of my life, I was, that gave me a kind of sense of control and purpose, and that felt wonderful. For Britt, art also allowed her to express feelings. Feelings that as a calm, quiet kid, she sometimes didn't feel she could express in her regular life. And it helped her develop mastery. It feels so good to be so good at something, right? It also feels good to be a part of something good and bigger than just you, which is an important protective factor as well. And that can be through cultural beliefs, spiritual beliefs, or just goal setting as a whole. The things that kids need are the basic knowledge to help them navigate the world, not just as kids, but as adults too. It's important that we expose our kids to experiences that challenge them with organization, emotional control, and flexible thinking. Organization, emotional control, and flexible thinking are things that many adults I know struggle with. Because if nobody teaches you how to be a person in the world, like how to pack your backpack so the homework doesn't get all smushed in the bottom, how not to just punch your brother in the neck when he takes your bakugan. If nobody teaches you how to register to vote or how people finance big purchases like cars, that sometimes plans change and it's still okay. How are you going to figure that out? 
For younger kids, the best activity for this is free play outside, which is great because when they're inside, they're stepping on my furniture. But outside, without an agenda set by the grown-ups, kids govern themselves, and they figure out how to solve problems. We also need to promote kids connecting with nature more, which has been shown to enhance resilience. There's nothing in front of screens that really help these skills, at least very much. This is not a complete list of things. There's so many things like nutrition, strong cultural identity, setting limits, and more depending on where you look and who you ask. But you can see that these skills and tools are not just about the kind of parenting that gets your kid out the door every day. These are also the tools a kid needs to help them deal when something truly, truly awful happens. When they're faced with dysfunction, abuse, and neglect, which every parent is thinking, "Mm, no, not my kid, no way. But maybe your kid. And maybe not your kid, but maybe a kid who will know your kid. And maybe, in the words of Hillary Clinton or Glennon Doyle, depending on how you Google it, there is no such thing as other people's children. So, outside of trying to build your child into a superhuman with wonderful self-actualization and self-awareness, a tiny Pema children who knows emotional Krav Maga and possibly actual Krav Maga, there's more to protective factors than just what you do with kids. Another category of protective factors that are going to help kids deal with these truly, truly awful things are the relationships they have in place. And not just their relationship with you, though we'll get back to that. It's their relationships with their peers. That was really important for Britt as she was growing up. Hi, I'm Crystal, and today I'll be interviewing Brittany. Okay, so here we go. So what's your favorite group? I have a few of those. Um, I'll start with Jesse's Child because they're my favorite. I really like Beyonce. She's the lead singer. Um, and then I like Blink-182. And then I'd say Green Day. You know, my journal, basically, every other journal entry is my best friend's Shelby, my best friend's Jennifer, my best friend's Jamie. And I had many best friends, but they were all the best friend. Um, so it fluctuated, and I really um, took to building my relationships with friends as a way to just comfort me. What's your favorite stuffed animal, like, you know, that is important to you? Um, well, probably my Sylvester I got from my mom a long time ago and my dad. Um, what's your favorite possession, like, in my room? Yeah, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be just one. All right, um, <clears throat> kind of strange, but my clothes and... Um, well, <laughs> my Elvis clock. <laughs> okay, um, and my mirror. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. In middle school, Britt didn't know how to talk with her friends about the difficult things in her life. She was scared that her life was just too different from theirs. But that all changed in high school. In high school, there's one friend in particular who changes Britt's life. This friend is named Sam. She was probably the first person I opened up to about it in great detail. And she really held space for hearing that and sharing her own stories. And it was just like this huge, huge weight lifted. Britt and Sam got closer their sophomore year. And it was a huge connection for each of them to make. This is Sam telling us about her friendship with Britt and how they connected, which was talking about their difficult childhoods. I just remember we both were like parked next to the tennis courts at the high school after we'd come back from lunch and we were both crying and in my truck and both just like really vulnerable and raw and just sharing things that I don't believe we'd shared with anyone else and we talked a lot about finding our voices she always said that she wanted to be able to stand up for herself and to protect people around her from anyone that was harming or hurting anyone. And so that's what I remember about her pretty strongly is her her idea of what right and wrong was and what was and wasn't okay for someone to treat her. Britt and Sam were really close in high school. 
and their relationship is still strong today. I think we've definitely found a strength in the other person and a desire to get out of the situations that we were in. And I think that that just kind of fueled each other. We would give each other cards for our birthdays, and we would say, this is the year. This is the year you're going to grow so much stronger. You're going to look back at the beginning of this year, and you're not even going to recognize this person. And so I think that we just had this desire from the beginning to get out of our situations and be stronger and rise above it. And so I think we did validate that for each other. Who can say where the road goes, where the day flows? Only time. And who can say if your love grows as your heart shows? Only time. Time. This is Britt with her stepbrother, goofing off uh, with her tape recorder. As Britt grew up, even after her dad married her stepmom and conflicts started to be common in her life, there were good times with her siblings and family. That is Enya, by the way, in the background. Then who can say why your heart cries when your love lies only time? (laughs) And during scary times, like when there was fighting in the house or their stepmother was yelling... Britt had her sister. So my sister and I, if we weren't sharing rooms, we were sharing a wall. We moved a lot, but in one house we shared a wall and we had this knocking code. And I don't remember the specifics, but one was like, hello. Two was like, come here. And three, I think was like, coast is clear, something like that. And we would kind of sneak into each other's room and pass the tape recorder back and forth and interview each other. Yeah, I'm going to your game, so yeah. And thanks for commenting on me not being able to go to the Backstreet Boys concert and not being able to watch TV while you're watching basketball game right now. Thank you so much. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Um, and or just kind of like share clothes or share a couple giggles or anything to just kind of bring levity to that uncomfortable situation. I don't know who else you like. Backstreet Boys. I don't know. Sorry, you can't go to their concert. <laughs> That's about it, but I'm going to go watch basketball because it's on TV now. And you have got to go to my game. It's We'll be leaving at 6.40. Right now that's in 30 minutes. So get ready. See ya. Bye. So it's not just peers that are important but relationships within a kid's broader community, church community, neighborhood community, school community. I do recall in high school playing basketball, and that gave me this sense of community. And that was so, so important to me and new. And mind you, I sucked at basketball, but I was recruited because I was and am almost six feet tall. So I just, I felt seen. I felt like the coaches saw me and they saw a tall girl that might be good. And uh, little did they know. Um, But it it really just gave me this like bonding experience with other friends and a safe place to go after school. And that was really key for me because I would avoid going home. Beyond a network of peer, community, and cultural relationships, there's one protective factor that everyone agrees is the single biggest thing a kid needs, one ring to rule them all. So in a child, the single most important factor to increase resilience is having at least one supportive adult in their life. For a lot of kids, that supportive adult is most likely to be in their family. And Britt felt like she did have that from time to time. Early on in her life, it was that time with her mom and stepdad and stepbrothers. She was also with her dad a couple nights a week and on weekends. 
And she describes him at that time as a very empathetic person who loved her a lot. After Britt's mom died at age 32 when Britt was only eight, Britt and her sister went to live full-time with their dad, who was a single guy at the time. My dad was so playful with us. He, every night before bed, he would play us guitar. He would play Tom Petty or Bob Dylan or make up his own songs and um, play us a whole array of songs until we'd fall asleep. He would put the fan on and um, cold sheets on us to cool us off or rubber backs or you know when we were awake we'd play lots of games we'd go to the park and he would wrap us up we had this I think it's called a papazon this like circular chair and it had this cushion in it it was a circle and he would wrap us up in that and make tacos his little daughter tacos and um he was very engaged and and um that's the that's the main I love that yeah her dad tried to help Britt grieve her mom's death He sent her to therapy and art therapy. He enrolled her in a camp for grieving kids, which was facilitated by supportive adults. And I remember feeling such um, levity being there because I was around what felt like maybe a hundred kids of all ages who lost loved ones, whether it was parents or siblings or friends. Um, and to feel kind of normal uh, amongst all of those people and to, to play, to have permission to play. Britt's adverse childhood experiences really came into play in middle school. And by that point, her family dynamic had changed. Britt was feeling anxiety and stress from a growing list of ACEs. And Britt didn't feel like she had a family member to support her in an unstable situation. I think I just turned to peers, mostly, to um, kind of have a sense of comfort in alternative family. But role models and consistent adults can come from anywhere. Sometimes it's a foster care situation. It's a friend. It's a neighbor. So there can be lots of different people who can be that supportive adult in a child's life. Could be mentors, advocates, teachers. I had a couple babysitters that were sweet. um, And that meant a lot to me. But I mostly was, if I wasn't at home, I was at friends' houses. And so the kind of caretakers were my friends' parents. And that was comforting, yeah. I was kind of just like a a gleaner and a grabber of good people in my life trying to uh, absorb my friends' parents and kind of get love through them. And I really did feel that growing up. And I had some role models that were... um, influential. Uh, They would be some teachers, some of my dad's friends I did like uh, that I grew up around. This is something that Britt's friend Sam definitely noticed as they were growing up. I've watched women who are older, you know, possibly like our mother's age, kind of adopt Britt and take her under their wing. And there was a woman who We went to high school with her sons, and she taught Britt how to drive. I mean, I would say there's been 10, 15 women throughout our friendship that have adopted Britt, essentially, and done motherly things for her. Here's why all this Parenting 101 stuff matters. Because more adverse childhood experiences can indicate a stronger likelihood of poor health in adulthood. So more protective factors aren't just about building happier kids, but healthier adults. The thing is, there isn't yet research to tell us fully and exactly how your protective factors interact with the bad things that happen. There isn't yet a formula we can run that says, oop, that's tapping sounds. Hmm, well, your childhood kind of sucked, but you did have a great relationship with your mom, and also you played outside 143 days per year, and also, uh, hmm, checks records. Took a vitamin that one time, so you should be okay. We aren't making our intern Megan Palmer calculate every bad thing that happened to Brit and every protective factor to come up with some sort of answer for why Brit is pretty okay right now and whether she'll continue to be pretty okay as she gets older. We can't do that. And also, Britt is still young. She's just 32, so some of the things she's at risk for 
might not manifest for several more decades. But we do know that her sister, who lived with her and experienced some of the same adverse childhood experiences, has already exhibited some of the health concerns that Britt is at risk for, including cancer. By the way, please don't feel bad if all these protective factors don't exist for you or for your kids. They did not all exist for Brit, and they don't all exist for anyone. It's just, you know, the more you're aware, hopefully the better you can do. You know, family, friends, neighbors, safe living environment are all things I think we should be working towards. Of course, in life, we only have limited resources, and you can only impact the things that are most easily impactful in your life, and everybody's life's different. But certainly, I think to understand what protective factors are and which ones you might be able to enhance in your life is an important thing to try to do. Just try. Try. Just like we're going to try to be back after this break. I mean, I think we're going to be, we're going to, we'll be back. Hi, everyone. I have a podcast suggestion for you. If you like the sound of two women talking, which is my favorite sound, it's called Listening to the Forever 35 Podcast. Am I still 35? No, but I was when the show started six years ago. There are six years of episodes. Hosts and best friends Kate Spencer and Dory Shafrir talk to listeners about everything. It's a real comfort listen. Find Forever 35 wherever you listen to this podcast. And we're back with a more developed picture of Britt's childhood. Not just the bad things that happened to her, but the things that went right, too. What that picture shows us is Brit's resilience. And resilience is a word that I have struggled with. It's a hot word right now. It's everywhere. But the word resilience can be problematic, and not just because it sounds like a way you'd describe an all-weather tire or a hard-to-kill houseplant. The way resilience gets used can be too simple, too narrow, and too much pressure. It's simple because resilience seems like an easy excuse to make, especially when we're talking about children in vulnerable populations. Especially when problems feel too big, resilience can remove our feelings of responsibility for really doing anything meaningful about the problem, or our shame for not knowing how to approach the problem, because resilience, hearing kids are resilient, sometimes feels like hearing nothing's wrong, or it it doesn't matter because everything will be fine. It's a massive imbalance of power and can be a source of trauma all on its own. Part of why I hate the word resilience so much is the definition. And yes, this is a definition I found on dictionary.com. Resilience, the ability to recover quickly from tough situations. That's so much pressure on people who are hurting. I don't want to raise children who believe it's their job to hurry through the big, hurtful, terrible things in life to achieve something they think they're expected to be. While I'm on a rant, there's a second part of that definition of the word resilience, and I also dislike it. Elasticity, the ability to spring back into shape. I don't want children to be defined by their traumas and their tragedies, but I also want them to be able to honor their suffering. To not focus on how quickly they can recover from something. To not feel pressure to return to their original shape when they're changed. I want them to know that, yes, there are things to bounce back from, and quick. Life is going to be filled with small to medium setbacks and disappointments. But there are things that take longer to recover from. Things that aren't so easy to overcome. And when we use the same word, resilience, for everything from a hard yoga class to grief and trauma, I mean, that's tough for me. There are, in life, many before and after moments. Moments where you know that after this specific thing, you will not be the same. 
You may act the same. You may keep your same job or your same haircut, stay in the same house, wear the same lipstick. But something inside you, some deep internal setting, has been switched. Is my gripe with the definition of resilience just, you know, the matter of of replacing a couple words? Would I be okay if we just said it's an ability to recover from tough situations and struck out that quickly? Would I be okay with it if we just said you return to a shape and not the shape? Maybe. I'm being difficult because I know that when words like this catch fire... When they're introduced into the popular lexicon as synonyms for strong or capable, where they're really catchy on Instagram and Pinterest, you'll catch me double-tapping that stuff. There's a pressure for people to live up to those words. If you do not recover quickly, if you do not go back to your original shape, are you not resilient? And if you are not resilient, what are you? Weak? Self-obsessed? What word describes a person who's just struggling, who's just wading through, who's trying their best but still having a really, really hard time. I don't know. Maybe it is resilience. I think it's one of those things that is hard to measure resiliency. This is Brandon Jones. He's a therapist who works with childhood trauma, and yeah, when I interviewed him, he also got the full rant on the word resilience. Here's the thing about resilience is, I mean, it is great, and in certain ways, sure, we are all resilient. When we're babies, we fall and get back up. When we're kids, we fall off our bikes, we get back on. Why am I so obsessed with falling? Brandon really helped me with my resistance to that word. Resiliency means being able to overcome, this is my definition, being able to overcome adversity and still have joy in your life. That's it. It's developing your mindset, using things like social-emotional intelligence, and being healthy. You know, I work with a lot of folks who've been sexually abused, who've been in domestic violence situations, who've been sex trafficked, all different types of things. And I tell those folks, the reason why you're still here is because you're resilient. You're overcoming those situations. You're overcoming chemical dependency. To still be present, to still have a life of joy and fulfillment, that's what makes someone resilient to me. The Instagram, the Pinterest post, all those things are great. All those quotes are great. But those things are just, you know, small reminders for you to keep going and be the best person that you can be. So that definition helps me a lot. And it lines up with everything we've been talking about. Developing your mindset, your social-emotional intelligence, leveraging your relationships, being healthy. When we apply resilience to the concept of childhood trauma, it's not about small setbacks. It's about big trauma. It's not about snapping back. It's not about returning to your shape and quickly. It's about accepting, understanding, and processing. So within the context of ACEs, if your rollerblading wrist guards and knee pads are your protective factors, once you hit the sidewalk, that is your ACEs, how you react is your resilience. Do you lie on the concrete crying? Do you get up and burn your rollerblades? Do you laugh get up, start skating again, and later on show off your purple bruises to your friends before executing a perfect triple lutz with your newfound skills. As Brandon points out, resilience is the ability to overcome, which you can also do even without having had protective factors or enough protective factors or the ones you needed at the time. We talked with Brandon because most of the people listening to this will have already gone through their adverse childhood experiences. Like Brit, they'll be looking back at their childhood trying to understand it, knowing that we're all fundamentally changed by our ACEs. This is where we're at. Your journey of healing is going to make you different. Trying to return back to who you were before the incident or trying to return to, you know, who you were um, at the time of that incident is not going to help you. You need to focus on where you're at now and how do you get better in this moment, even in spite of the things that have happened to you. And it's important that we talk about what adults do with their ACEs, whether or not they had protective factors as a kid. Those things happen. Those things are real. That's still part of your life. But the key is you're here now. You're getting better now. We're not defining you by the negative experiences that you live. We're defining you about how you show up and act today. 
Look, not everyone is at a place where they can be doing this work for a lot of reasons. Some of us are just in survival mode. And unfortunately, when you're in survival mode, you're not thinking about legacy. You're not thinking about the consequences of things later. You're thinking about, I need to address this trauma right here, right now, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to feel good. And unfortunately, a lot of the things available to feel good end up causing bad things later, right? So we have a lot of promiscuous sex, um, a lot of overeating, smoking, drinking, or they have you know bad health outcomes like STIs, things like that. It's because they're not actively dealing with the stress in a healthy way. They're just trying to feel good in the moment. In the previous episode, I talked about looking at people and asking, what happened to you? Instead of, what is wrong with you? And sometimes when we see people doing unhealthy things, it's easier to assume they're just making bad choices instead of thinking, oh, maybe you're doing this because you were hurt, because you're hurting. Not all of us can be self-care queens meditating for 30 minutes a day, starting each day with a journaling practice while sipping a freshly pressed juice and then going to yoga. Not all of us can go to therapy. Not all of us are ready for it. Not all of us are interested in it. You don't have to be. So I have a concept um, that I call the ABCs of resilience. <laughs> so the first thing is awareness. And that's what I try to do with the folks that I work with. You're here. Like, boom, be aware. You're okay. You, I mean, well, you might not feel okay, but you're present, right? So that awareness and then adapting to that awareness is important. Now that you're here, what are we going to do? So the A in Brandon's ABCs of resilience is adaptive awareness. The B is balance and boundaries. So now you got to figure out what your balance is. How are you spending your time and energy? How are you focusing on yourself versus focusing on other people? How are you balancing your wants versus your needs? How are you balancing your compassion and your accountability? Like, how are you balancing all these things? Recognize your situation with adaptive awareness and then set up the work with balance and boundaries. Now, it's time to take action with step C. Consistent constructive choices or healthy habits, how do you start doing these things and being consistent? I think that that's a pattern, that's a framework for people to get better and to get healthy and to be resilient. But you got you have to do some work, though. You can't just assume that time's going to heal all wounds and things are just going to get better. Those consistent choices and healthy habits look different for everybody. And here's the rub. However you choose to show up and work, it's probably not going to feel good right away. In fact, it might not be fun at all. It might be the worst. Getting better kind of sucks. There's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. That's just the truth, right? If you want to heal, if you want to grow, it's going to be painful. Emotionally, sometimes physically. But again, you're looking for results that are better than where you're at, and you have to put yourself through those things. It's just, it's just important. I think therapy is probably the number one thing, because you're going to get a trained professional who can ask those you know, critical questions to help you kind of dig deep into that childhood and figure out what happened. It sounds like it's um, a a way of broadening your context beyond just what happened to you. Right. Yeah. And and you have to, right? Because if you get stuck in this happened to me, it can get very lonely. You can start blaming yourself. That's the reason why these things happen. Uh, you might start developing more hatred for the folks around you. Like, well, my mom didn't do enough for me or my father didn't. He wasn't there for me. And all you can do. You can have all those things happening. And those things are unhealthy because really it's about you healing, not about directing blame towards anybody. And it happens a lot for folks who go through trauma. This can all be overwhelming to think about before you start. There are physiological effects to reliving your traumas, and maybe you're still in the middle of trauma, still going through it. Get the help that you need. Give yourself permission that it's okay if you mess up, right? You're not going to be perfect. We're never perfect. That's not the point. That pain all remains a part of our story. But what we do with that pain is what's important. Thirty-two-year-old Brick goes to therapy and practices a lot of stress relief tactics, like meditation and mindfulness. She creates art. She fosters a sense of purpose and identity. She maintains and builds positive relationships. She's actively doing the work of staying resilient. She's using her tools and skills. And she's tried to use those tools and skills to communicate with her family, to process some of her adverse childhood experiences with them. 
Britt and her dad have sat down, just the two of them, a few times in recent years, and tried to have a dialogue about the past. I basically expressed to him that, you know, my childhood was really hard for me, and here's my story, and I kind of revealed things, but I said, I also want to hear your side of the story. It's something that I didn't think about as a child, and I really want to hear your perspective. Did you see these things happen? Did you... Did you fear for us kids? Were you in fight-or-flight mode? All of these questions I had, and I was very present, and that made me feel proud because I was afraid that I would just kind of flee my body and not be not be there to say what I needed to say. And it was a really good heart-to-heart, and, you know, we cried, and he heard me, and he explained somewhat of his side, you know, that he, he didn't quite see it all that way. Um, he did kind of invalidate me it felt at times with just if I would explain something that my stepmom would do he would go immediately into well she was in a lot of pain Brit but he has his own story and it felt good to hear kind of where he came from and that he you know he cried he felt he felt bad he's he's he heard me and held space for me to just kind of explain my story. Brit's dad also remembers this conversation he told us that he quote always tried to empathize with Brit We had more than one conversation about it, and I don't know what I can do to help her more than just listening, which I always tried to do. But I also felt that I personally could not fix her feelings or attitude about this matter. End quote. But there's still a lot of strain in the family relationships. Britt's dad is still married to Britt's stepmother, And there have been several moments of conflict, including one where Britt says she was able to talk directly with her stepmother about her behavior. Britt's stepmother was very agitated and started yelling in response. Britt was told to leave the house and not come back. Britt's father told us that telling Britt not to come back was a, quote, extreme comment. And then Britt's sister was diagnosed with thyroid cancer at age 32. And suddenly, standing in a hospital room, Britt and her dad were in the same place for the first time in a year. And we kind of did like an awkward hug. And then he said, um, Britt, at some point, I'd like to thaw the Civil War and maybe we can talk. We had a very present talk for about an hour and a half walking in some park in his town. And I said everything that I wanted to say and, and then some. And I felt... Like I was articulating things in a way that I didn't before, and I felt I felt at times he heard me, but he, I was even able to say to him and stop him when he would invalidate me. And I said, Dad, do you realize a pattern where every time I say something that my stepmom would do, you go straight into, but she was in pain and her side of things, and it feels very invalidating. And he heard that. Britt's dad told us that he was sure Britt told him, quote, once again about her pain. I must have mentioned that her stepmother is in pain, too. Their pains are different, whereas Britt is talking emotional pain and her stepmother has physical pain. I didn't want it to be insensitive, but more to suggest that it goes both ways. No story like this is one-sided. I love Britt and wish I could help and still hope to help her feel better about things. I might not be able to do much about the past, but perhaps the future can hold a better feeling for both of us. End quote. We don't know what will happen with Britt's family, whether they will be able to communicate. We don't know what will happen to Britt, whether her protective factors and her resilience will help her avoid the worst of the risks that her adverse childhood experiences tell us she may face. But we do know that she's not looking to return to her previous shape and do it quickly. She is allowing herself to be changed. And she's learning to live comfortably in that new version of herself. To make sure that this new version does the least damage and asks for the most good in this topsy-turvy world in which we live. If ACES tells us that the things that happen to us in childhood can affect us as adults, it also tells us that as adults with ACES, we can pass on those effects to our children. And Britt has thought a lot about that cycle. When we talked with her about ACEs and she learned about the health risks that she faces, she was surprised and scared. 
I don't want children, and um, yeah, it kind of scares me. Um, I've been pretty definitive uh, about not having children out of fear. Although everyone that knows me says you'd be such a loving mother, um, I'm just so afraid of that, you know, coming up. It's, it feels inevitable, and that, that really does scare me. Next episode, the third and final in this series, we'll talk about passing it on and the bigger picture and how this affects all of us. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McInerney. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. We are edited by Phyllis Fletcher. Uh, Hannah Meekock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon is our digital producer. Megan Palmer is our intern. Thank you always to Christina Lopez for all of her help. We got help from Sam Chu, hell of a guy, and Jacob Maldonado Medina, who you might remember as a former TTFA intern. Guess what? She's got a job now. Full time. Good for her. This episode is produced in partnership with Call to Mind, American public media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health, and in partnership with St. David's Center for Child and Family Development which is building relationships that nurture the development of every child and family. With support from the Sauer Family Foundation, which is committed to improving the lives of disadvantaged children and their families in Minnesota. You can find resources to help understand childhood trauma and how to address it in your life or with someone you know at calltomindnow.org. Things like stuff from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And let us know how much this series helps you understand how what happened to you affects who you are. That and more at calltomindnow.org. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media, shortened to CBS. (laughs) Do you guys get my jokes? Sound off in the comments. (laughs) Actually, don't. Ring this bell for notifications. I just am pretending I'm a YouTuber (laughs)